This next section is entitled, Proselyte Conversion and Works of the Law. Today, as well as 2,000 years ago, Christianity seems to have developed what I like to recognize as an unnecessary amount of paranoia surrounding circumcision. To be sure, you can plop into or drop into any Christian church, your average Christian church, and bring up the uh, the issue of circumcision. And most clergy, most pastors and the like, are under the impression that circumcision is quite unnecessary now that we are believers in Yeshua. And, you know, in some ways I can't blame them for taking the stance. However, again in my research, uh, a man by the name of Mark Nanos has demonstrated most credibly, in my opinion, that the Judaisms of the first century functioned with a serious theological flaw in regard to their view of circumcision. So what I'm going to do here for us in our commentary today is we're going to pick up a discussion of his from a paper that he wrote entitled The Local Contexts of the Galatians Toward Resolving a Catch-22. That's the name of his article. Uh, which, at the time that I downloaded it, back on, what was it, May 15th of 05, was available for reading at his website at um, http colon uh, forward slash forward slash mywebpages.comcast.net forward slash nanosmd forward slash index.html. That's where I downloaded it from. You probably have to do a web search for Mark Nanos, N-A-N-O-S, if you want to find his website. Now, I'm not sure exactly what the link is. At any rate, let's uh, pick up the quote from his paper. Okay, it's a lengthy quote. Here we go. Paul was an outsider to Galatia. Quote, uh, are the references to chapter 4 of Galatians, verse 20 through 20. 12 through 20, I'm sorry. In fact, Mark Nanos goes on to say, he is the only one from elsewhere of whom we can be certain. And Paul's message, to the degree that it offered inclusion of Gentiles as full and equal members while opposing their participation in proselyte conversion, ran counter to prevailing Jewish communal norms for the re-identification of pagans seeking full membership, at least according to all the evidence now available to us. Pursuit of this non-proselyte approach to the inclusion of pagans confessing belief in the message of Christ resulted in painful disciplinary measures against Paul from the hands of Jewish communal agents to whom he remained subordinate, but in ways that he considers mistaken, for he refers to this as, quote, persecution. The reference that Mark Nanos makes is to chapter 5, verse 11, and you can compare that to 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24. It is not difficult to imagine that pagans convinced by Paul's gospel that they were entitled to understand themselves as righteous and full members of Jewish communities apart from apostolic conversion, but rather on the basis of faith in a Judean martyr of the Roman regime, would also in due time meet with resistance from Jewish communal social control agents. Might not the resultant identity crisis of those non-proselyte associates develop along the lines of the situation implied for the addressees of Paul's letter? Mark Nanos goes on to suggest that Paul's gospel, or more accurately in this case, the resultant expectations of the non-Jewish addressees who believed in it, provoked the initial conflict, not the good news of the influencers that Paul's uh, converts can eliminate their present disputable standing as merely pagans, however welcome as guests 
by embarking on the path that will offer them inclusion as proselytes. That offer, on the part of the influencers in Galatia, rather represents the redressing of a social disruption of the traditional communal norms resulting from the claims of, quote, pagans who have come under Paul's influence. Thus, the ostensible singularity of the exigence uh, of the exigence arises not because of a new element introduced by the influencers and does not suggest that they represent a single group moving among the addressees several congregations. Instead, the influencers may be understood to be similarly appealing to a long-standing norm, however independent of each other's communities they may be acting, when faced with the same disruptive claim on the part of the new Christ-believing subgroups within their communities. Mark Nanos concludes by uh, stating that the conflict arises because of the claim that their Gentile members are to be regarded as full members of these Jewish groups apart from proselyte conversion, end quote. Now, after having read all that and doing my studies, and I've been studying Paul extensively for probably now about two and a half years, and I have to admit that I went through a paradigm shift. I used to believe that Paul was, like the standard Christian church, arguing against a works-based righteousness. That is to say, merely thinking that I, as a Jewish person, can walk in Torah to a perfection that would amount to... um, being declared righteous by God on a forensic sense. And I used to hold to that view, which, in a sense, that is what the church holds to, and in some ways it's what um, David H. Stern puts forth as his view of, of, of understanding Paul's Gospels in his Complete Jewish Bible, as well as his Jewish New Testament commentaries that you can uh, pick up from the various bookstores. But, after having studied Paul more closely, especially allowing... Um, history to help me out a little bit, I now understand that the prevailing Judaisms that existed in the first century initially upset the biblical balance not by teaching that we need to walk in Torah blameless, but rather by teaching that circumcision was the vehicle by which a non-Jew could and must enter the covenant made with Israel. In fact... That's a whole different way of viewing the Judaisms of the first century. Rather than reducing them to the caricature of a works-based righteousness, they rather saw themselves as the recipients of God's grace merely by being born Jewish. Shame on them. To be sure, a whole theological council was formulated to deal with the problem in the first century. I'm referring, of course, to Acts chapter 15. And in both Acts 15, verse 1 through 35, as well as Acts 21, verse 17 through 26, the Jerusalem Council had to get together and address the issue of, quote, returning to the works of the law as opposed to, quote, living in the freedom of Messiah. So that's where the differences arise between, say, your standard Christian theology and today's new Paul perspective. The works of the law is the point of contention. So you have to ask yourself, what is the meaning of the works of the law? As we study Paul, uh, Paul more carefully, Surely, works of the law does not refer to correct and true faith-driven observance of written Torah commands. In other words, works of the law does not mean living within the provisions and stipulations of God's written Torah. No, that's not what works of the law means. What this technical phrase is referring to, in fact, is a set of halakhic rules 
that an individual must ally himself with in order to be received into a specific and exclusive community. So, again, we turn to Tim Haig for some insights on the phrase works of the law, because I know many of you listening to this podcast are probably thinking, Ariel, where are you getting this information from? By way of um, reference, Tim Haig, uh, Mark Nanos, James D.G. Dunn, uh, N.T. Wright. These are some good places to start if you want to get the new perspective on Paul and, I, in my opinion, a more accurate view of the phrase works of the law. But let's quote Tim Haig, okay? I'm going to quote from an article uh, available on his website as well. It's a study of Galatians, and it's available again from TorahResource.com. The copyright is 2002. I'm going to quote from pages 98 through 100, okay? Quote, One of the difficulties we have when encountering the word Torah, usually translated law because of the Greek word namos, in the apostolic scriptures is that we wrest its meaning away from the first century context in which it was intended to be understood. It is clear that the first that in the first century the oral Torah, that is the rulings of the sages that had taken on halachic authority, had found its place alongside of the written Torah. In some cases it was viewed as secondary to the written Torah, but in practical measures it was received as equal or even superior. The proper manner to obey the laws of Moses was in accordance with the oral Torah. We must remember then that when we encounter the word law, which is the Greek word namos in the apostolic scriptures, we cannot simply presume that the books of Moses are its referent. Such a monolithic approach to the word ignores the historical setting. We must, Tim Hay goes on to say, in every case at least give way to the possibility that the written and oral Torah are sub, uh, I'm sorry, the written and the oral Torah are summed to one degree or another, in the use of the word law. Tim Haig goes on to say, quote, This is particularly true with the phrase works of the law, or more accurately, works of the Torah. Until the discovery of 4QMMT, which, I'm at, which I might note is a um, Qumran document, 4QMMT. Um, let me see if Tim Haig says what that refers to. Uh, he doesn't in this article. 4QMMT is the 4th Qumran Teg Miksat um, Ma'asehat Torah, is what 4QMMT stands for. Anyway, Tim Haig goes on to say that until the discovery of this particular document, we had no extra-biblical instances in which the phrase works of the law or works of the Torah was used. Now that this Qumran document has been discovered, we have another source to consider and another witness as to what Paul might have meant when he spoke of Quote, works of the Torah. Tim Haig goes on to say, quote, The fact that both the phrases works of the Torah and counted as righteousness are found in this document is incredibly important for understanding the same phrases in Paul. What we now understand is that the phrase works of the law or Torah was used in Paul's day to refer specific sets of rules or halacha to which a group required for its self-definition. Simply put, such a list of works of the Torah constituted the entrance requirements into the group, since the group would no doubt consider its own interpretations of the written Torah to be the correct interpretation. They would also have held to they would also have held that only those who adhere to their halacha would be actually obeying the Torah and living righteously. Works of the Torah then refers to halacha required for entrance into the covenant community 
as envisioned by each sect, not personal obedience to God's word. And since covenant membership was considered one and the same with the statue or the status of quote righteous, it is not difficult to understand how adhering to a given halacha to gain membership in the community was attached to being reckoned as righteous. End quote. In essence, works of the law refer to those group requirements as outlined and delegated by each individual group functioning under the prevailing Judaisms of Paul's day. Now, Rav Shaul was the missionary to the Gentiles, as you'll remember, and in my opinion, he had to defend the correct Torah viewpoint in his letters addressed to the churches at Galatia, specifically at chapter 5, as well as to the ones in Ephesus. So I think we're poised now to better understand some of Paul's um, lingo, kind of decode him, as you will. Circumcision, then, is really a shorthand way for Paul to simply say, quote, conversion to Judaism, or becoming a Jew. And as we know now, circumcision itself was historically misused by the Judaisms of Paul's day. But there is no reason for us to continue in such a misunderstanding, especially with the information that the Spirit is giving to us now. Nor is there any reason for the emerging Torah communities, that is to say those who are returning to their Hebraic roots, to shrink back from that which God has clearly given, provided we maintain our identity, that is to say our primary identity, as that of one firmly grounded in Mashiach. A Christian attempt at disproving the validity of this important covenantal sign of the Jewish people has caused much strife and division among the body of believing Jews and Gentiles. Wouldn't you agree? And I'm not trying to lay the blame at the Christian church. I'm simply saying that uh, with all the anti-Jewish and anti-Semitic bias that we have inherited down through the ages, I think it's time that we um, return to the, the truths of God's word and begin to embrace them afresh and begin to reconcile ourselves to the family tree of which we Christians, we Gentile Christians, have been uh, grafted into. The matter is really made clear when we understand that Hashem never meant for the sign to secure the promises for the believer. It's kind of like baptism. We know that baptism is, in fact, a commandment. It's a mitzvah. Yeshua told his Talmudim, go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them. So we know that baptism is commanded. And yet, still, some Christian groups have seen fit to make baptism as the vehicle of salvation, or uh, 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 an ingredient of the salvation process. That is to say that the person is not really saved unless they're baptized. Baptism doesn't save anyone. Faith in Messiah saves someone. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. The person who becomes baptized doesn't save himself or doesn't enter into salvation. Rather, he, like Messiah, identifies with Yeshua by dying. It's a crucifixion. He is dead to himself and made alive unto God. And the baptism is a public declaration of the truth that is already internalized. I might suggest that circumcision is similar. This was to be the sign that the person who was circumcised was connected via covenant to a larger family. Is it valid for Jews today? Do we even have to ask that question? Yes, 
Of course it's valid for Jewish people. Did not God say to Avraham, you and every male of your household after you shall be circumcised? It is an everlasting covenant between us? Yes, in this way we Jews forever identify physically and spiritually, I might add, with the unending covenant made with our father, Avraham. But we have to ask, is it practical for non-Jewish believers? Can non-Jewish Gentile males also become circumcised? Well, this is just my opinion, okay? Unfortunately, at this juncture in history, it's not practical. Now, I didn't say it's not possible, and I didn't say it's not right. I simply said it's not practical. Why not? Well, until the church gets right its view of the Torah itself, and all the other trappings of legalism... It's pretty discouraged. Well, it's somewhat discouraged by many Messianic Jewish rabbis, and so um, I mean, I reach my heart goes out to those who want to uh, um, more readily identify with Abraham, and yet um, again, I don't 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 hear me saying the wrong thing. I I'm you know I'm pretty uh, delighted to find those people who are uh, strong in their faith, willing to undergo the knife. You know, pun intended, I suppose. I'm not saying that Gentiles can't get circumcised. I, I know many pastors who uh, say that they can't, but there really is, some, there really are some, uh, some, some. How should we put it? There are some, uh, some major, um, some dialogue that needs to take place between well-meaning Jews and Gentiles before we can reach a decision as to. Uh, just across the board, decide that all Jews and all, I'm sorry, decide all Gentiles as well can get circumcised. Uh, it is a command. And so I guess pray about it, listen to uh, the Holy Spirit. Don't listen to, to, to you know, some teacher on the, on, the, on the radio or some guy on the internet. Uh, pray about it and see what the Holy Spirit has to say. Is it necessary for salvation of the individual, whether Jew or Gentile? No. It never was. Abraham was saved, if I could use church lingo. Abraham was saved before he was circumcised. And that's Paul's point in both Romans and in Galatians. I suppose that's all I really want to say on the matter in this format. Let's go on with our commentary. What really makes Avraham such a great role model of faith for us today is that not only did he trust in the word of Hashem, but the Lord himself saw into his future and predicted that his offspring, that is to say you and I, would also be taught how to trust in the Almighty. Isn't that a great heritage that our father Abraham has left for us? Let's take a look back at our Torah. Turn to Genesis 18, verses uh, 17 through 19, okay? I'll read them for you, and I'll uh, just highlight what I'm seeing here. Quote, Adonai said, Should I hide from Avraham what I am about to do, inasmuch as Avraham is sure to become a great and strong nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by him? For I have made myself known to him, so that he will give orders to his children and to his household after him to keep the way of Adonai and to do what is right and just, so that Adonai may bring about for Avraham what he has promised him. Now, catch the emphasis here, end quote, that's where the verse stops. Catch the emphases that I place there, the so that and the so that. Let's stop there and, and meditate on that. This really is a fantastic statement from the mouth of the one who can see into every human possibility. The Lord knows our weaknesses and he knows our potentials. And he looks into our lives 
and he can see what can become, I suppose you could say, what can become of that faith that we have in him. Clearly that's what the verse is saying. He looks into Abraham's future and says, so that he will give orders to his children and his household after him. And yet Hashem himself is pronouncing a blessing in, on Abraham's life because of Abraham's stance, because of the, the, uh, uh, the firm-rooted belief that Abraham had in the word of the Lord at this time. Would that we, you and I, might have Hashem pronounce this blessing over our families today? Isn't that a wonderful uh, possibility there? What must we do? Do we just open our hands up and say, Lord, bless us? In my opinion, God expects us to to avail ourselves of that which he has freely given, namely his spirit, but also his word and his promises. Firstly, as we look at this passage, God promises to be faithful to make himself known to us. And that's what I mean by make ourselves available or avail ourselves of that which God has so freely given to us. God has sent his very son to die for us and to dwell with us via the Spirit, of course. And because of the Spirit of God, he has made himself known to us. He knows us and we know him. We are known of God. And that's the most important starting point. We then, like faithful Avraham, are then and only then enabled and subsequently covenant-bound to obey the teachings of our Heavenly Father. Obey the Torah of our Heavenly Father. We need not shrink back, like I said earlier. The Torah is our heritage. It's our inheritance. Finally, after God makes himself known to us and after we avail ourselves of God's Torah after we walk into his ways. Finally, the Torah itself is uniquely designed to bring about a righteous behavior in our lives. The word of God sanctifies us. It sets us apart from the world. It sets us apart unto a God. It allies our lives to the object, to I'm sorry, to become the object of God's righteous promises. Just, just remember this simple axiom, okay? Repeat after me. God does not bless wickedness. Okay? God doesn't bless wickedness. He doesn't bless unrighteousness. God rewards righteousness. God rewards obedience. And God loves us either way, whether we obey or disobey. But we are talking about a covenant relationship, one with another. You know, if I love my wife, I'm going to serve her. Even when I'm um, not feeling like serving her, I'm still covenant bound to love her. And the real truth is that I can learn from those times when I'm uh, less, I, I should say, I can learn from those moments when I'm um, um, having spats with her or when I'm disagreeing with her. I really can, if I allow the Holy Spirit to speak to me and say, Ariel, you need to reconcile with your wife because you are covenant bound, Ariel. You are covenant bound to love her and to serve her. And so we really have the same responsibility to God. God never gives up on us. We are the ones who walk away from time to time. We are the ones who, uh, how do we say it, drop the ball? We let the love grow cold, and yet God is reaching out for us. To be sure, as I go back and look at these verses, um, I'm looking at what God says of himself and how he's made himself known to Abraham and how that Abraham's going to uh, uh, give orders to his children after him to keep the way of the Lord. And of course, that's a, that's a, a clever way of saying walk in the Torah. 
keep the way of Adonai. That's that, that's an idiom for walk in the Torah. And then do what's right and just so that, so that, there's the syntax there, the, the connector point. Because Abraham is walking in God's ways, God then can reward um, obedience and righteousness. And, and I'm not making that up. Of course you know that the Torah teaches that God rewards those who walk in obedience to him. So, Again, the syntax of the above pasukim, uh, pasukim is Hebrew for verses, the syntax of the above verses is hinting at that very reality. Note the running continuity suggested by the connecting phrases, so that, in the above quote. Furthermore, we must, like faithful Avraham, continue to place our trust in the Lord against all unbelievable odds. Abraham was an old man. Sarah was an old woman. And yet the Lord spoke and said, You will have a child, Abraham. Your promise, or my promise made to you, will come to pass. Is anything too hard for the Lord? God asks rhetorically. Of course, nothing's too hard for God. And so Abraham places trust in quite really impossible odds. And yet. We, like Abraham, must also place our trust in the Lord against unbelievable odds to perform in our lives the promise that God has given us through Yeshua the Messiah. God makes promises to us. And the Messiah Yeshua is the guarantor of those promises. What are the promises? I shouldn't even need to name them. But let's just turn to the Torah and look at some of them, okay? Turn with me to Romans Chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. And I'll read for you. Quote, Furthermore, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called in accordance with His purpose. It's an adequate description of you and I, the redeemed of the Lord. The verse goes on to say that because those whom he knew in advance, sounds like Abraham, right? Those whom he knew in advance, he also determined in advance, would be conformed to the pattern of his son. There's our righteousness, folks. It's not in and of ourselves. The righteousness that we inherit is from the son, and the righteousness that we walk into is the righteousness of Yeshua himself. Our lives conform to his life. The verse goes on to say, so that he, again, God is still the object, or the, the, the one who's doing the action here, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, uh, many brothers. Those whom he thus determined in advance, again, God determines, those whom he thus determined in advance, he also called, and those whom he called, look at the clauses here, how they're lining up, and those whom he called, he also caused to be considered righteous so that God can bless us, I might add. But the verse goes on to say, and those whom he caused to be considered righteous, he also glorified. Isn't that wonderful? End quote. Isn't that wonderful? Someday, you and I, as believers in Messiah, will put off this mortality, and we will put on immortality. That's what it means to be glorified. Paul speaks of that elsewhere, how this uh, uh, body will become glorified, and we will be like Yeshua. But you know what? The lie of the adversary is that we have to wait till then. Everything with God is wait, wait, wait. I don't think so. God's Torah promises that as we walk into His ways, walk in the Spirit, become obedient to our Heavenly Father's instructions, that God rewards us now as well. I'm not talking about pink Cadillacs and new suits. I'm not talking about name it and claim it. I'm talking about a genuine blessing where our lives are filled to overflowing with shalom, that's peace, 
with wholeness, with goodness, with truth, where we can have honest relationships one with another. This is the way of the Lord. This is the fruit of the Spirit. This is the pattern of Messiah, the lifestyle of Messiah. And this is the lifestyle we are to lead today and in the age to come. In fact, as we look at the verse there, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called. We usually stop at the first verse. At least that's my impression as I dialogue with many well-meaning believers. But reading further informs us of our true identity in Messiah. And what is that identity? I've heard someone say, you know, Ariel, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Think about what they're saying. I'm just a sinner. You know what? You know what I, I, how I answer them? You're not a sinner saved by grace. You have a new identity. In Messiah, you know what your new identity is? You are the righteousness of God. You are a righteous heir according to trusting faithfulness. According to the Spirit in you. God looks down on us. He no longer sees sinners. That is not to say we don't sin. But our identity has changed. It's a legal status. It's a legal change like an adoption. We're no longer lost children. We have been redeemed by the Messiah's blood. And in that redemption, God calls us sons and daughters. That's a new identity. And this new identity causes us to be called, as as faithful Abraham was called, righteous. God sees us as righteous. In fact, I believe he credits to our account righteousness based on the Messiah's faithfulness. So, what's left for us to do? Except to be obedient to the Father. Let's move on in our commentary. Again, I apologize that I've got a cold here, so you have to bear with me as I sniffle and such. This final section of my commentary on page 11 is entitled the Akedah. Moving past the details surrounding the fall of the wicked cities of Sodom and Amorah, which is chapter 19, also past the incident with Avimelech in chapter 20, and past Hagar in chapter 21, I want to focus on the binding of Yitzhak in chapter 22. Now, Yitzhak is the Hebrew name for Isaac. And the rabbis look at this chapter and refer to the story as the Akedah, meaning the binding. And the reason they call it the Akedah is because the Hebrew word Akad, uh, found in Genesis 22.19, means to bind or to tie. And the verse is speaking of when Isaac was bound to the altar by his father. So, let's look at a couple of interesting details that stand out in this particular story. First of all, when Avraham began to make his journey to Mount Moriah, Mount Moriah, to offer his only son, the text uses the Hebrew term Yahid when it says only son. Now, Yahid um, comes from the root word Achad, um, from where we get the Hebrew word Echad. And Echad is a word referring to one. However, it can include a, um, a how should I say, a partnership. For instance, let me give you an example. In the book of Genesis, when uh, Adam takes Eve to himself as his wife, the Torah says that the two became one flesh. The Hebrew says they became um, basar echad, one flesh. And yet, we know that Adam and Eve did not fuse into one body. They didn't become one homogenous 
creature, they still retain their separate identities. In fact, they have separate personalities just like any husband and wife would. And yet they are one in Messiah, or I'm sorry, one in God. So the two become one, or as the KJV would say, the twain became one. They became echad, and so yet that's a unity. God himself, speaking of himself, says in Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Hebrew says, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Again, that word Echad refers to a unity. Father, God, the Spirit, God, and the Son, who is also deity, who is also God. These three are, in fact, a triunity. One God, and yet expressing himself in this triunity. So, he says he's Echad. He is one God. There are not three separate gods. Yet this Hebrew word, Yachid, spelled Y-A-C-H-I-D, refers to a singularity or a solitary. So when Abraham goes up the mountain and, he, and God says, take your only son, the reader has to think to himself, but wait a minute, didn't Abraham have two sons? He had Ishmael and he had Isaac. Yet Isaac is referred to as the Yachid, Similar, I believe, to Yeshua, who is the only begotten Son of the Father. We could say he's the only unique Son. And so we see a kind of a type and shadow going on here. Ishmael, I'm sorry, Isaac being the shadow and Yeshua being the type. Yeshua is the only Son of God, and yet we are also sons of gods. Sons of God, I'm sorry. And yet Yeshua is uniquely the Son of God. And why? Because he's the, he is the head of humanity. He's the only begotten of the Father. He is perfect and one with God. Isaac is the covenant member. He's the covenant recipient, I should say. God singled him out to receive the covenant blessings, not Ishmael. That doesn't mean that God loved Ishmael any less, I believe. God, in fact, does bless Ishmael and prospers him. Yet, Isaac is the covenant member. Isaac is to continue the blessings down through uh, Abraham's offspring. Remember, it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so, Isaac is called Yahid. At any rate, Abraham takes his son up for a burnt offering unto the Lord. His dialogue with his servants is also very significant. Remember, Abraham tells his young men in verse 5, chapter 22, verse 5, to abide with the donkeys while he and Yitzhak went to the mountain or go to the mountain to worship. But then he goes on to say that both of them would return. Now what gives? This was after Abraham had clearly been commanded by God to offer his son as a sacrifice. So why would he tell his servants that he and his son are going up the mountain and that both of them are going to return? Doesn't Abraham know that he's going to slay his son and offer him as a sacrifice? I think we're seeing more here than meets the eye. Do you see the significance of the statement along with me? I believe that it demonstrated the incredible faith that this man Avraham, that this man Avraham had in trusting Hashem for the promises. How so? You see, Avraham had in fact been told that his seed would number the stars of the sky innumerable. We read that back in Genesis chapter 12. Avraham had also been told that um, he would have to sacrifice his son. And so, we have kind of a dilemma here. The dilemma is that if he were to have to kill his son, his only son according to promise, then according to God's promises, he would be childless and then the uh, promise would cease to be. So, Abraham is demonstrating incredible faith here. In obedience to the word of the Lord, 
he does take his son up the hill to sacrifice him. But he must then believe that the Lord is going to have to somehow miraculously either resurrect his son or or bring about another son. Either way, it's a belief in the miraculous. This, I believe, is shown in a statement, I and the boy will return. I and the boy will return. So, I really believe that he, by faith, believed that God would resurrect him. And I'm going to jump down to the book of Hebrews and prove it here in a moment. But let me just pause and say this much, okay? Concerning resurrection, because that's what's on Abraham's mind, I believe. Concerning resurrection, here, I believe, is the pinnacle of God's demonstrative, uh, demonstrative power. Let's try that again. God's demonstrative power. Hard to say. Resurrection itself. Resurrection from the dead. We know from further reading that Avraham did not actually kill his son. Right? He raised his hand, he brought the knife up, and the angel stopped him. But the Torah figuratively teaches that he did. How so? Now let's look at the book of Hebrews. Let me read from the New International Version this time, okay? I'm going to read chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. Quote, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. See? There we have the writer of Hebrews filling in for where the Torah didn't, fill, didn't be explicit there. But the, the uh, quote from Hebrews goes on to say that Abraham reasoned that God would raise him from the dead and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. That is to say, according to Abraham, Isaac was, good, was as good as dead. When he raised the knife, he was ready to slay his son. And so in his heart, he had killed his son. He had, re- he was, he had sacrificed his son. He was just simply going to go through with it until God's angel stopped him. So, Isaac again becomes a type and shadow of Yeshua. The shadow, of course, in Isaac is that Isaac didn't really die, but f- since figuratively he did, he portrays the Messiah to come, who really did die. And Isaac figuratively was raised from the dead. Pre-fig- or pre-shadowing, of course, the reality that Yeshua did die and did raise from the dead. So again, we're left with this axiomatic truth that bringing forth life from lifelessness is a power that no other created being possesses. This is why I believe it is the highlight of the miracle working power of the Almighty. Resurrection itself serves as the proof or the vindication of God's choice of election. When God decides to raise from the dead his son, then we know that this is God's chosen servant, that this is God's chosen sacrifice. Just like Isaac was God's choice, he is the shadow, and Yeshua is the reality. The Messiah, Yeshua, is God's chosen Messiah. And there's no other. And how do we know? Because Yeshua demonstrated his position as Hashem's chosen Messiah by being raised from the dead. Isn't that awesome? To be sure... I imagine that this was one of the issues that got Apostle Paul in so much trouble, especially during his missionary travels, and perhaps even led to his sentencing, at least if we uh, look at one passage and, and, and just relate from that one passage. In Acts chapter 24, verse 19 through 21, Paul um, 
confesses that it is because of the resurrection of the dead that he is on trial. We all know that politically in the first century, the Sadducees were a group of religious leaders who did not believe in resurrection, nor did they believe in the spirit world. And so Paul was a Pharisee. The Pharisees did believe in resurrection. They also held two spirits, or the spirit world, that is to say angels and things like that. Paul was a Pharisee to his dying day. And so he held to resurrection. He believed in a resurrected Messiah. Today, resurrection itself, I believe, is the single most important fact that differentiates false messiahs from the one and true living Messiah Yeshua. You see, we've got many men who have contended for the messianic position down through the ages. We've got our Joseph Smiths and our Mohammeds and um, our Krishnas and our Buddhas and and people who have claimed, even in Judaism, you know, Bar Kokhba and Shvavti, what is it, Shabti? I can't remember. I I don't know if I'm saying his name right, but many messianic uh, pretenders. You know what? History records that these men have received revelations from God. And that's nothing new. And many of these men have laid claim to Messiahship. But history also records that all of these men have lived and all of these men have died. Not a one of them has risen from the grave to testify of God's amazing power over death. None of them. All of their bones are rotting in graves somewhere. However, by comparison, the man from Matzeret, the man Yeshua, is no longer in the grave. Where is he? He has been raised from the dead by the power of Hashem, never to die again. And now he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. And with that, I say hallelujah. I hope you do too. The closing blessing for this parasha is as follows. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Natan Lanu Torat Emet Vechaye Olam Nata Batochinu Baruch Adonai Notein HaTorah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You have given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song, Shema, was written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. 
That's Y-E-S-H-U-A, number 613, at Hotmail.com. Or visit our website at GraftedIn.com. That's GraftedIn.com. <laughs>